the uh, committee will come to order. First, let me uh, share with my colleagues, some of us just got back uh, early this morning from a visit to the Middle East. Uh, I was joined, uh, 10 of our colleagues were there. I was joined by Senator Coons and Senator Booker of this committee. The trip was headed by Senator Graham. It was a bipartisan group, five Democrats, five Republicans. Joining Senator Graham on the Republican side were Senator Collins, uh, Senator Thune, Sullivan and Britt. Uh, Senator Blumenthal and Reed joined uh, on the Democratic side. So there were 10 of us there. Our visit to Israel was shocking. We saw firsthand the brutality of Hamas. We saw that in the, the scars in the country. We saw the videos, we saw the photos, we saw things we would never thought we would ever see in our lifetime. As we have characterized Hamas as ISIS, it is evil. What it did is unspeakable. We made it clear that Israel, we stand with Israel and the right to defend themselves. We met with the families of the hostages. It was not an easy meeting. The pain, the uncertainty, the fate of their loved ones, all that weighed very heavily on us as we were able to meet with the Israeli officials to try to understand the game plan. We stress that Israel has a right to defend itself, and we need to do everything we can to provide the humanitarian assistance and safe harbor for those Palestinians who are trying to escape Hamas. It was a difficult trip, and it's difficult times. As we were there, there were rockets and missiles being fired in parts of Israel and in Gaza, and we know the situation is deteriorating. We made it clear that the United States stands strongly against any escalation of this conflict by the enemies of Israel who would try to take care, take advantage of this situation. We also visited first the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. It was a very encouraging visit. We were there because we know Hamas was trying to end the normalization talks between the Saudis and the Israelis. We made it clear, and in our conversations with the Crown Prince, uh, that that cannot happen. We need to stay focused first on the tragedies of Hamas, what it caused in Israel, but to keep alive the normalization and integration of the countries in the Middle East. And we've received positive uh, um, conversations with the Crown Prince. So I just really wanted to update our committee uh, that we thought this visit was extremely important, underscoring the importance of a bipartisan response by the United States Congress uh, to the tragedies that are taking place in the Middle East. So from the Middle East to the subject of this hearing, the governing crisis in West Africa and Sahel. Five nations in the region are suffering coups since 2020. This includes Mali, Guinea, Burkina Faso, Chad, and most recently, Niger. Mali and Burkina Faso have actually had two coups. At the same time, there have been an alarming increase in terrorist attacks by militant Islamist organizations. 
So today we're going to examine this recent wave of coups and violence and what it means for U.S. policy. I welcome Assistant Secretary Fee. I want to thank you for the work that you and your team are doing in this area, your efforts to support the region as a response to the situations in West Africa and Sahel are vital. The challenges are great, but we must acknowledge the current trajectory is grim. It requires a critical evaluation of our policies. Congress demanded that when we passed the Trans-Sahel Counterterrorism Partnership Act. The junta leaders justified their coups by pointing to their elected government's failure to improve security. But they themselves have failed to deliver as well. And both Mali and Burkina Faso, security has sharply deteriorated. Even as civilian deaths have skyrocketed, instances in Niger are on the rise as well. The spiraling security situation is already impacting coastal West African nations. Attacks in, in Ghana and Togo uh, in, and in Benin are increasing. Sudan and Gabon have both had coups. Instability now stretches from the Red Sea to the Atlantic. Why? What is driving this dynamic? It's hard to say our security assistance has been effective in the Sahel or in countries in West Africa. We certainly have very little to show in terms of the improved security, stability, or stronger democratic institutions. And quite frankly, there is an uncomfortable truth in all of this. Across the Sahel, the United States trained militias and militaries were responsible for the coups. We have trained the very people overthrowing civilian governments. So it's critical that we take a brutally honest look at our approach to date. Assistant Secretary Fee, I'd like to hear your thoughts. Is it time for the United States to change its strategy? Is our security assistance helping or leading or contributing to the negative outcomes? How should we adjust these policies? We also need to be consistent in our response to coups in Africa. I understand one size doesn't fit all, but it's important for the United States to take a principled stance when coups occur. We need to lead with our values as we try to advance an agenda of good governance in the region. I think we need to make our position crystal clear. Military takeovers of civilian-led governments are coups. We shouldn't mince words. And anyone engaged in coups should be personally sanctioned. The failure to sanction, a policy shift that is clearly taking place here in our government, sends the wrong message. The presence of the Russian Wagner mercenary group presents an additional serious threat. The impact of Wagner's operation in Mali has been disastrous for the civilians. Wagner and the, and the uh, Malian military stand accused of massacring as many as 500 people in Mora in 2022. Moscow is making overtures in the military regimes in Burkina Faso and Niger. Russia expansion coupled with the expulsion of the French United Nations peacekeepers in Mali could trigger chaos that would be difficult to recover from. I know we don't want to lose ground to Russia or China, but we shouldn't fall into the trap of giving free passes to authoritarian and military regimes for the sake of great power competition. We made that mistake too often during the Cold War, mistakes for which our foreign relations still suffer in some countries today. I hope you will speak to how we are responding to these challenges. 
I understand that ultimately the course of history in other countries is up to the people who live there. However, we have the responsibility to at least do no harm through our approach and to stand in solidarity along with millions of Africans whose democratic, as, dem, 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 democratic aspirations of living in a, a dictatorial regime. Just as we supported the people in Eastern Europe for decades after World War II and their fight for democracy, so Assistant Secretary Fee, we have lots to discuss. I look forward to that discussion. This has been a hearing that we have planned it's an extremely important subject, and we hope we can have a frank discussion during this hearing. I now turn to our distinguished ranking member, Senator Risch. Well, thank you, Mr. Chairman, and uh, thank you, Assistant Secretary Fee, for being here with us today. Uh, all of us here know that you deal with a portfolio that is uh, difficult and troubling, which is a gross understatement, I suspect, but uh, you deal with it. It's unfortunate uh, you're here today alone without the support of representatives from USAID and the Department of Defense. It is a difficult task to address all these issues in the Sahel without uh, these uh, perspectives, but, uh, but here we are. Uh, there are concerning trends, uh, uh, much of what is, which has been outlined by the chairman here uh, in the last few minutes, uh, that we're witnessing in the region uh, and the wider continent. A decline in democracy, challenges in U.S. diplomatic engagement, both bilaterally and multilaterally, and the effectiveness of our regional policy, if a clear one exists, including our incentives and uh, deterrence, some of which have been outlined by the chairman this morning. Global events have accelerated these changes, including Russia's war in Ukraine, interference from countries like China, Russia, and Iran, and the COVID-19 pandemic. We have had seven coups in Africa, seven coups, during the uh, years of the Biden administration. Things aren't working. The ongoing significant changes in the Sahel and West Africa affect our national security and that of our regional and global allies. The primary threat is Islamic terrorism. Large parts of Mali and uh, Burkina Faso are controlled by groups linked to Al-Qaeda and the Islamic State, and terrorist groups are expanding their attacks on governments and populations in many countries. In countries such as Mali, the presence of Wagner's mercenary is particularly concerning. This group is known for severe human rights abuses, spreading false information, and unjustly taking local resources. Since uh, Purgosian's demise, Wagner's activities in Mali have become more significant threat to the United States national security, boosting the Russian state capacity for harmful global operations while providing questionable security gains in return. Many Sahel and Western Afri uh, African governments are unstable and lack public support. In areas controlled by military juntas, citizens' opinions are wholly ignored and the government merely enforces military orders. The remaining democracies in the region struggle to meet the needs of their expanding youth populations, often fall short in combating corruption, and cannot handle security and economic challenges independently. But that's not the whole story. These challenges make it difficult for Africa to prepare for upcoming threats like coups, terrorist attacks, election issues, or food crisis, and not the least of which is their Burgoyning population over the next uh, decades. Secretary Fee, the last time you spoke to this committee about the uh, administration's uh, Sahel policy, you highlighted 
uh, a five-year interagency strategy designed to address the region's challenges and uh, better the lives of its people. You mentioned in your written testimony that this strategy, this strategy would adapt to significant changes in context. However, uh, given, uh, however, given what has occurred in the Sahel and West Africa over the past 14 months, that strategy clearly isn't working. I believe the fundamental assumptions and approach require significant revision. The department must prioritize resources for, re for the region and strengthen our diplomacy. When supporting our African partners in implementing regional solutions, we should lead, not merely be an active bystander. The leadership includes coordinating with our European allies as well. We've seen the department demonstrate it can prioritize in times of crisis, like in Ukraine and most recently in Israel. We must uh, similarly prioritize the crisis unfolding in the Sahel and West Africa, or we're going to continue to face the consequences. Finally, I'm concerned about the administration's unclear policy on Sudan. I've asked President Biden to appoint a special envoy for Sudan. Given the many issues you and the Africa Bureau handle, we need a seasoned diplomat singularly, singularly devoted to Sudan to steer U.S. policy, assist the Sudanese people, coordinate with regional partners, and handle complex diplomacy to stabilize the nation and foster genuine democracy. I also encourage the department to move quickly to make an official determination about the ongoing atrocities in Darfur and other areas of the country. Such a designation will go a long way in making clear to the world where we stand on the killings and human rights abuses occurring in Sudan. Again, I fully recognize that dealing uh, with the uh, issues in the region is a heavy lift. I hope uh, you can point out ways in which Congress can help you. Thank you very much, Mr. Chair. Oh, thank you, Senator Risch. Our witness today, Ambassador Molly Fee, is Assistant Secretary of State for African Affairs. Ambassador Fee has, a lead, has led a long and distinguished career in the State Department before being sworn in as Assistant Secretary in September 2021. She served as a Deputy Special Representative for Afghanistan Reconciliation. She was U.S. Ambassador to South Sudan from 2015 to 2017. She serves as the Deputy Chief of Mission in Ethiopia, Chief of Staff in the Office of Special Envoy for Sudan and South Sudan, and as Acting Assistant Secretary for International Organizations, among other positions that she served. Thank you for being here. We look forward to your testimony. Your, your statement will be made part of the record. We ask you to summarize in about five minutes so we can get engaged in committee uh, questions. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. May I start by thanking you and your colleagues for traveling to the Middle East. Um, all of us are concerned about what is happening there and fearful of global impacts. So thank you for your service in advancing our interests and values. And thanks to the both of you for welcoming me here today. I'll try and answer some of your questions in my prepared testimony and through dialogue. The urgent challenges in Ukraine and the Middle East at times overshadow the US partnership with Africa. But we must prepare for the future. By 2050, one in four people on the planet will be an African. The talents today of more than one billion Africans already enrich the world's culture, politics, and economy. The continent is the source of critical minerals, such as cobalt. The Congo River Basin is the largest carbon sink in the world. This is why the strategy of the Biden-Harris administration recognizes Africa as a major geopolitical force and why we seek to elevate African voices in institutions such as the Security Council, the G20, and the IMF. 
The subregion of the Sahel is integral to our relationship with the continent. The coups that have occurred recently in Mali, Guinea, Burkina Faso, and now Niger illustrate the democratic regression that threatens not only the people of the Sahel, but their neighbors and our partners in coastal West Africa. Allow me to address the drivers of political instability and what the United States has done and could do. The primary problem is weak governance. Every country where a coup has taken place had previously experienced military takeovers. Many of these governments had engaged in corrupt practices, failed to provide basic services, and ignored democratic values by extending term limits or disregarding human rights. Such practices tested the presumption that democracy delivers. But context matters too. Historical legacy, enduring poverty, climate change, and a decade of escalating terrorist violence further weaken the performance and resilience of Sahelian democracies. Atrocities by the Islamic State and the branch of Al-Qaeda, known as JNIM, and predations by criminal armed groups have placed unrelenting pressure on governments and civilians. Military rulers point to the supposed failure of democracy to justify their actions. But as you noted, Mr. Chairman, military rule does not improve people's lives. In fact, military rule leaves populations poorer and less secure. The number of deaths from political violence increased by 150% in Mali and 77% in Burkina Faso in 2022. Violence targeting civilians in Mali increased by 38% this year, nearly a third of these incidents perpetrated by Malian security forces or the Wagner Group. Violent incidents in Niger, which had been declining significantly due to President Bazoum's leadership and the partnership between Nigerian security forces and U.S. and European forces, rose by 42% in the month after the coup. How to foster a return to democracy? Uh, Mr. Chairman, Ranking Member, we are considering and adjusting based on these events. In the case of Niger, we are working closely with the regional organization ECOWAS. The African Union and Africa's regional economic commissions are essential partners in advancing peace and democracy. That is why, although we promptly paused the majority of U.S. assistance for Niger after the coup, we delayed at the request of our African partners the formal assessment that the outcome constituted a coup while they sought to restore President Bazoum to office. Acting Deputy Secretary Toria Newland traveled to Niamey in August to try and convince the generals to restore constitutional order. I later traveled to West Africa to consult on how to encourage a quick and credible restoration of democratic rule. Secretary Blinken met with ECOWAS foreign ministers at the recent UN General Assembly to propose a phased approach to resuming US assistance based on concrete actions to return the country to democratic rule. Committed to the Nigerian people, the United States has maintained humanitarian and basic health and food assistance. Swiftly resolving the crisis in Niger could serve as a positive alternative, and we are now actively encouraging negotiations between the Junta and ECOWAS. How to prevent coups. With the support of Congress and the Global Fragility Act, we are helping countries in coastal West Africa to strengthen governance by programming such as increased engagement in historically marginalized communities. We are also working to implement the African Democratic and Political Transitions Initiative, as well as the 21st Century Partnership for African Security, programs launched by President Biden at the U.S. Africa's Leaders Summit. There is a perception that we spend too much on security, but in the past five fiscal years from 2018 to 2022, the State Department provided approximately $2 billion in bilateral assistance to the Sahel 
and of that, less than 15% was for security assistance. Adequate staffing is essential, so I ask you to support the administration's budget request and to confirm ambassadors. We are now missing ambassadors in Nigeria, Gabon, and the African Union. Thank you again for scheduling this important discussion. Well, once again, thank you for your, for your being here and the work that you're doing. We'll have five-minute rounds. I'm going to start by challenging the delay in Nigeria on the determination. You said you did that because you were trying to restore the deposed leader. The coup occurred on July 26. It was two and a half months later before the declaration of coup was made. The delay did not work. Some of us think it may have shown the military authorities that the consequences of a coup are not going to be felt. They look at the fact that we have not imposed sanctions on any of the individuals involved in coups, which is, to me, a change in our previous policy. Uh, in Gambon, you just announced, as I understand last night, a determination of coup. That occurred on August 30th, over uh, almost a two-month delay. To me, it's giving the wrong signals. Looking at the number of coups we've seen in this region, that the consequences won't be there. So tell me why we are not considering sanctions. I understand Europe is. Why are we not considering sanctions against those who have allowed these coups to occur? Mr. Chairman, I welcome and respect your perspective. Let me address both Niger and Gabon. Our friends and partners in ECOWAS in coastal West Africa, including the leaders of Ghana, Senegal, Cote d'Ivoire, and Nigeria, all asked us to delay making our formal assessment because they were fully committed to trying to restore President Bazoum to power. And they thought that our statement would derail their efforts. So we were trying to support the subregion in its leadership and efforts to promote democracy and to promote restoration of democracy. So that is, that is the reason for the delay, because they asked us. They asked me, they asked Secretary Blinken, they asked Acting Deputy Secretary Newland. In Gabon, last week, uh, Senior Director for Africa Judd Deverman and Deputy Assistant Secretary Melanie Higgins from the Africa Bureau traveled to talk with the coup leaders there about a restoration of democracy and we announced uh, the, the 7008 designation following those consultations. In both cases, in contrast uh, to how we responded to the problem in Mali, we actively engaged directly uh, with the leadership of the region and with the leadership of the, uh, the, the, the generals who had seized power to tell them they had, they had a choice. The better choice, as described by the statistics I um, reported to you on the increase in violent incidents in Mali and Burkina Faso, is to get back to a democratic path and to be able to resume their partnership with the United States and others in the international community to help develop their economies, provide stability, and progress uh, their governance. Um, so that, that is why uh, uh, there was a delay in both of those cases. We tried to engage um, directly with uh, the leaders uh, to try and force a different path. And we also um, were responding to the requests and um, uh, pleas from our allies. 
uh, and I want to uh, assure you that we are at, we continuously look at options uh, for sanctions, um, but in the in the current approach in which we're trying to direct uh, the leaders back uh, to a path of democratic transition, uh, that that's a factor in in the assessment. So it seems like other than Molly dealing with those associated with the Wagner Group. None, no, none of the others have been even considered for sanctions. It, it, this seems like a shift in policy that we've in the past have made it clear that there will be a consequence. I don't see that in our policy today. Is that? I, I, I believe there have been consequences because we have suspended assistance. And but you the, haven't in imposed the, any sanctions. No, sir. But in the case of Niger, um, we have not only suspended the assistance captured by Section Seven Zero Zero Eight but we've expanded the, the freeze to include uh, assistance and cooperation not captured by the law. So we are actually doing more than you have asked us to do because we believe that our engagement was very positive in Niger. So in Niger, yeah. we see that they have requested the exit of other countries' military presence. We have a military presence in Niger. Tell me why it's important for us to maintain our military presence in that country. In 2022, uh, according to uh, data collected um, by reputable sources, there were approximately 5,000 violent incidents in Mali and 4,000 violent incidents in Burkina Faso. In the first six months in Niger, there were only 450. The, the violent incidents had, had declined from about a third since 2021, and civilian casualties were declining. That is a result of the sacrifices of Nigerian security forces, the role of the United States and European partners, and our programming uh, to strengthen uh, uh, the conduct of security forces, including the police and the gendarme and the judicial sector in Niger. It was the leadership of President Bazoum to talk to uh, marginalized communities. We were making a positive difference. We believe the Nigerian leadership now recognizes that that was a positive difference. They have said they want to remain a partner with us, and we have said we cannot remain a partner with you unless you get on a serious, credible path back to democratic transition. So, in short, what would happen if we remove our troops? Um, as Senator Risch pointed out, Ranking Member Risch pointed out, it would be preferable if the military were here to address that themselves. However, as I've described to you, uh, we believe that we have made a significant difference in Niger. But I also want to tell you that our partners in coastal West Africa believe our presence is important to them and to their security. And they are quite apprehensive about a scenario in which the French are gone and then we would leave as well. Senator Risch. Well, uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Um, Secretary, when, when uh, can we expect that the State Department is going to make uh, an atrocities determination for Sudan? Uh, I think we can note that uh, the UK came out with a definitive statement uh, calling atrocities and uh, therefore ethnic cleansing last week, and there is no shortage of information about the crimes being committed against civilians in Darfur, Darfur, uh, Khartoum, and other parts of Sudan. So when, when can we expect the State Department to, to make uh, a determination? Uh, Senator Risch, the Office of uh, Global Criminal Justice is actively reviewing that 
uh, the crimes uh, that have been taking place in Darfur right now, and I expect uh, that they, in the near future, will be able to make a recommendation to the Secretary. We, we asked them to look at that early on. We have made public statements about our concern, and we are working in Geneva with the Human Rights Council on these matters, uh, including uh, successfully seeking a commission of inquiry. Uh, we, I appreciate that. Um, the, uh, it doesn't really answer the question. Can, could you try to narrow that down a little bit uh, more? You know, we, we know that, uh, uh, like I say, UK acted last week. What, what, it seems to me we could, uh, we could be further along than where we are. I'm trying to be very careful as someone responsible for policy not to intervene in the legal review, um, but I know that Beth von Schock and her team are closely and actively looking at this, and I, I, I'm sorry I defer to their judgment, but I expect it to be soon. Well, I will I, relate to them your, your concern and, and desire I, for I assume you're interested in this also as far as... I'm absolutely concerned. interested. I, in fact, asked them to undertake this review, but just to be careful not to, uh, to uh, affect their uh, legal deliberation. Uh, I, I just want you to understand it's their, their authority to make that decision. I appreciate that. If you pass along all of our concern, that may be helpful to you, and maybe uh, you could get back to us uh, with what you find out in that regard. I would appreciate it. Um, so, uh, help me out here. How's the State Department working within the interagencies, namely with the Department of Defense and the National Security Council, to address the growing challenges, including uh, related to our counterterrorism efforts in the Sahel and West Africa? I know you've addressed that briefly, but I wonder if you could drill down on that a little bit uh, for us, please. Uh, absolutely. We uh, have. Uh, as I've described, uh, we've had important programs, not only what the military has been doing, but what the State Department has been doing in Niger, our Counterterrorism Bureau, our Bureau of International Narcotics and Law, uh, uh, my own bureau, the Africa Bureau, and our support uh, for uh, civilian security assistance. Uh, we believe we were making a very positive impact in Niger. But we have suspended those activities um, because of the coup. And we have told the authorities in Niger that our partnership was making a difference. And, and if they would like to resume that partnership, they need to make changes. Niger has a history of coups. As I described, all of the countries where coups have taken place were vulnerable because they had experienced coups before. But in Niger, they have a tradition of the military passing power back to the civilians, often within a relatively short time frame, such as one year. Uh, so that is what we're trying to do in order to address the counterterrorism counter concerns in Niger. In close to West Africa, through um, the programming um, uh, under our strategy to prevent conflict and promote stability, the same uh, State Department offices I've described, as well as our cooperation with the Department, the Defense Department, and the intelligence community, uh, means we are trying to help those uh, countries have uh, more capability, uh, both in the security area as well as in the governance and development area, so that they are more resilient in responding to the terrorist threat from the Sahel. How do those countries respond to you when you uh, talk to them about the uh, not very good situation with the coup for changing uh, uh, governments as opposed to a nice clean election that the people could have a say in. How, how do they respond to you on that? I think it's really important that both the African Union and the regional economic commissions, in the case of West Africa, ECOWAS, very strongly believe in their protocols and in their policies and in their conduct 
that coups and um, um, irregular changes of uh, constitutional order are not good for the people of Africa, and they speak forcefully about it. In the case of Niger, ECOWAS has imposed very strong sanctions on Niger. They've cut off electricity, they've closed the borders, uh, and they've also frozen the regional currency, uh, Niger's access to the regional currency. Um, so they tell us that uh, in Niger, for example, they call it one coup too many. Um, so we are trying, that's why, Mr. Chairman, we were trying to respect their request to us. We were trying to support them uh, in their efforts to advocate for democracy and our, and our shared values. Uh, they do also, when we spoke to them about what our options are, for example, one option is to just terminate our relationship in Niger and depart. Uh, and they expressed a lot of concern about that option in coastal West Africa because, as I said, again, uh, the, from their perspective, um, they're fighting some of our enemies, ISIS, AQ, uh, the Wagner Group, uh, and they would like our partnership to help them deal with those challenges. Well, uh, my time's up. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I've got a couple more questions, but I'll submit them for the record if that's okay. Certainly. Senator Shaheen. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank you, um, Assistant Secretary Fee, for being here this morning. Um, in your opening statement, you ended by talking about the importance of having personnel on the ground who could help in these countries. And I just want to point out, and this is really not for the State Department as much as it is for my colleagues, that in Africa alone, there are 11 vacant ambassadorial posts, including, as you mentioned, the African Union and Burkina Faso, while it has an ambassador there now, um, I understand that ambassador is on their way out and the new ambassador has been nominated, but still has not been approved. When we are not there, we can't compete with China and Russia. So can you talk about how the absence of U.S. ambassadors is affecting your ability to do your job and our ability to support democratic governance in countries? Well, thank you, Senator. You probably said it better than I can. But we have an, uh, an, a unique system where the secretary recommends, the president selects and nominates, and the Senate confirms. That gives uh, the voice of an American ambassador weight. It gives us influence. It, gives us, uh, it makes us more effective. Um, so when we are missing that voice, uh, we're diminished in all of our efforts. There's also an internal impact. Um, a strong leader attracts staff um, and is able to engage in the interagency more effectively. Thank you. Um, I'm really pleased to have joined Chairman Carter on his HARM Act to designate the Wagner Group as a foreign terrorist organization. Um, but it's clear that we're still seeing Russia engage in the Sahel and try to partner with anti-democratic leaders there. And we also know that um, there's a real impact on what's happening in Ukraine and that war on African nations. What's our ability to track and rebut Russian information operations? Because right now they're winning the information war in most of these African countries on who's responsible for the food shortages that they're experiencing and the rising costs. Thank you for highlighting the uh, challenge um, and the dil deleterious effects of Russian disinformation and misinformation. This is something our African partners also express great concern about. Um, our Global Engagement Center is actively working uh, to help us be more effective 
in working with partners on the ground. So providing, making sure accurate information is available to independent sources in the media uh, and in civil society, uh, making sure they have uh, the correct information and making sure they have a voice uh, to share that information. Uh, but it remains a, a very difficult problem as it is here. Um, well, I appreciate the work of the Global Engagement Center. I'm a big fan, but clearly they're not accomplishing the task. And is the challenge that they don't have enough resources? Is the challenge that there's not enough coordination? Um, because we are still losing that battle. I don't think it's a problem of coordination. And of course, more resources are always welcome. I would welcome more resources for my public diplomacy uh, sections, for example, in embassies in the region. I think it's genuinely a, a tough problem. Russia devotes a lot of effective resources uh, to this effort. I don't think it's a coincidence that they have focused their efforts in Francophone Africa. They are trying to exploit the complicated uh, French colonial history. Um, and I, I think opportunities like this, Senator, where we can speak openly about this problem and provide the publics of Africa the real truth about what's happening if Wagner comes to your country uh, are, are one way we can continue to address the challenge. Well, tomorrow, Senator Ricketts and I are going to chair a hearing on the Black Sea region, which has been uh, obviously has the critical connection to what's happening in Africa. So what can we do to better engage with our partners in the Black Sea region to help address the information problem we've got in Africa? The Ukrainians have been very active in trying to reach out and speak uh, to African leaders and African publics and continuing to encourage uh, that approach, I think, would be helpful. Um, we, I, I think when we think about the challenges in the Sahel as broadly for Africa, sort of the triple whammy of COVID, um, the, the uh, loss of fertilizer, the loss of grains, uh, the increase in petroleum prices, the increase in inflation, it has really uh, damaged the ability of African governments uh, to help uh, support their, um, uh, their constituents. Um, that's why in the administration's supplemental request, you'll see a request uh, for some small assistance and some authorities that would leverage more money for the IMF and World Bank to make them better able uh, to help Africans deal with this economic crisis. Well, thank you. I'm out of time, but I would just encourage us to recognize that the Black Sea region and what's happening is a lot more than just what's happening in Ukraine and to reach out to our partners in Romania in Moldova and Turkey, um, and even in Georgia, where they understand very directly what's happening and why it's causing the, the food insecurity and the rising costs. Thank you. Thank you, Senator Sheen. Senator Ricketts. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, thank you, Assistant Secretary, for being here. And I'd like to follow up on the Chairman's questions with regard to sanctions. My understanding is that European Union countries create a framework for sanctions that would target certain entities or individuals, freeze assets, hand out travel bans, that sort of thing. And you also mentioned ECOWAS actually did implement a number of pretty restrictive sanctions, such as cutting off electricity. Do the European countries, are they also holding off on these sanctions? Because they've established a framework, but they're not sanctions yet. Are they also holding off on doing the sanctions in deference to the ECOWAS countries' concerns about trying to get the junta in Niger to give up power and turn it back over to the civilians? 
Yes, I think there's different ways uh, to consider what sort of economic or other pressure we put on um, juntas, for example. And in this instance, the EU uh, has previously provided direct budget assistance to Niger, and they ended that direct budget assistance uh, following the coup. Um, so they uh, are also... I'm sorry, would that yeah. be the equivalent of what we did with the 7008? Yes. Okay. Yeah, uh, similar. similar. We, okay. we, we don't provide direct budget assistance, but ending your aid. Um, and that has also had a big economic impact on the situation in Niger. So are you concerned, I understand, again, I heard your reasonings earlier why you're holding off on the sanctions, but are you concerned this is sending a, the wrong message to other nations, other African nations, where they, the governments may be under the threat of a coup? I think it's extremely important what you're saying, and, and, and I hear you. I, I, as I said, I think there are multiple ways to put pressure. Um, I believe that the economic pressure that we have um, uh, placed on Niger and other governments is significant and profound. They desire, they've told us, for example, the resumption of our security assistance and cooperation. So those are factors uh, that seem to us to be very persuasive in our negotiations. Uh, but I hear you on uh, the travel restrictions, which we could do in terms of sanctions on individuals. Great. Uh, thank you. Uh, switch topics a little bit. You mentioned a little bit about the security, how much we provided, but also in other areas as well. Obviously, our approach to build up the militaries in different countries to fight terrorists, um, training and equipping local forces. Over the past decade, the U.S. has spent about $500 million to build up Niger security forces to target terrorism. And obviously, this is very important, but there's also the criticism now that you know, the forces that we trained were part of the coup that replaced the civilian government. And are we somehow missing the boat here with regard to our strategy that we're training up these militaries and then they're responsible for participating in these coups? You know, and it's not just us, it's the French and uh, European, other European countries' counterterrorism efforts as well. So can you talk a little bit about that criticism? Is that a fair criticism? And what can we do to really mitigate the opportunity for us to train these troops and then have them participate in the coups. I want to say that we all share the disappointment that uh, military leaders with whom we have worked would make a decision to support a coup. I don't know necessarily that that is fully representative of the large program uh, that DOD runs, uh, particularly the military training program. They train tens of thousands, and of course they're better placed than I uh, to discuss this, and generally speaking, have positive results uh, in terms of increased professionalization, increased respect for human rights, uh, and increased respect for uh, civil-military uh, relations. Uh, so I'm not sure that some of these exceptional, spectacular, exceptional um, um, uh, act actions uh, are representative of the, of the program as a whole. I do believe that many times we have very productive relations with military leaders with whom we've engaged and with whom we've trained. But it's certainly something we should review. So is our, are our efforts too narrowly focused on counterterrorism here and the training of the militaries? Or do we need to change our strategy with regard to how we do this in these countries to avoid these coups? I think our strategy, which is true also globally, not just in Africa, is to understand that when you have a problem of political legitimacy um, because of weak governance and, um, and the aggravation from this terrorist threat, that the root cause is the political problem, but it can't be 
resolved easily and that can't be resolved easily in an environment where the terrorist threat is so great. So I, I actually think it's just hard. Um, secure, we've seen this in Afghanistan, we've seen this in Iraq. We, are, we have the best military in the world. We have really good impacts on, uh, on managing security threats, uh, but the harder, tougher work is helping work with governments, helping work with economic development, which is also hard to accomplish when you're under a terrorist threat. So it's a different type of human endeavor that I think requires a long investment. Great. Thank you, Assistant Secretary. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Senator Coons. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, uh, Ranking Member Risch. Um, thank you in particular, Mr. Chairman, for um, helping uh, organize, focus, and lead our recent trip to the Middle East that I think, as you said in your introduction, was very productive um, and critical at this time. Uh, and thank you for um, holding a full committee hearing on Sahel. Um, the Sahel is one of the critical areas in the world where the forces of chaos, uh, whether it's Wagner or jihadists or other sources of um, chaos, frankly, are on the march against the forces of stability, democracy, and development. Uh, and I'm disappointed that we don't have representatives uh, of our military and USAID here as well. Um, Assistant Secretary Fee, thank you uh, for your engagement, your hard work, your leadership in this area. Um, but to the point that Senator Ricketts was just asking, I think we need to stay on this and press both how the intelligence failure happened in Niger that we did not know that folks we had trained and were very closely integrated with were about to overthrow the duly elected president, Bazoum, um, and to then ask some tough questions about our path forward, given the departure of a critical security partner in the region, given the very urgent calls we're hearing from democratically elected presidents like Akufuado of Ghana, who has over and over pressed for more priority to be placed by our military in security in the region, and then to make sure that we have a focused, coordinated strategy for um, defense, uh, development, and diplomacy. This is a region, more people have died in terrorist attacks in West Africa in the last five years than the rest of the world combined. And Wagner sees an opening and is taking it and exploiting it. The last supplemental request included funding specifically to counter Wagner's influence in West Africa. It's not in the current supplemental. I hope we will consider adding some focused resources for security and development work in partnership with diplomacy. Um, as uh, you, you said, <clears throat> Assistant Secretary, we have, after 10 weeks, uh, reached a coup um, designation, I think long overdue, but I understand the reasons why, in consultation with ECOWAS and with the remaining democratically elected leaders in the region, that you were holding open space for a transition back to democracy, specifically in Niger. It's partly why we gave the administration um, flexibility in 7008 uh, waiver authority in the SFOPS bill this past year. Could you just be specific about whether there are now clear conditions uh, for the junta under which um, full security partnership and development assistance can be restored and where we are on that path? Um, I'm concerned about uh, President Bazoum's security and I'm concerned about losing the progress that you described that we were making towards reducing the number of terrorist attacks and improving security and stability in Niger when this coup unexpectedly happened. Thank you, Senator. Uh, as I've discussed here, we have discussed uh, with our ECOWAS partners and Secretary Blinken talked directly to them about how we could combine our efforts so we have leverage our assistance and cooperation, the sanctions that they imposed, and to work with the junta 
uh, on a package of actions they would take uh, and actions we would take reciprocally. Uh, those uh, discussions are initial, I would say, at this stage. Uh, we're encouraging them, um, and uh, uh, we will not um, be able to, we've made very clear, we will not be able to resume the partnership that is so important to both sides, I think, and to our neighbors uh, without action uh, on their side. So those discussions are underway and, and, and not ripe for public discussion. There's something like $500 million in assistance to Niger that is now hanging in the balance. The MCC, roughly $300 million compact that's been suspended, $200 million at least um, in assistance that's been suspended. It's my hope you'll work with Congress on plans for reprogramming. As you know, um, Senator Graham and I have worked for years on the Global Fragility Act, which have been referenced here. Um, I'm very disappointed at how um, this and previous administration have chosen to prioritize uh, regions and countries that I don't think fit the framing of that law, but coastal West Africa demonstrably does. Um, so I hope that we will work together uh, to strengthen your voice in the interagency to prioritize security assistance for coastal West Africa um, and I'd be interested in your comments on uh, what we can do to support the use of the Global Fragility Act in this region, particularly in the coastal region that I think is now uh, really under um, dramatic threat as a result of this series of coups and the loss of a stability partnership across the core of the Sahel. My colleague, Mike Michael Heath, who's the Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for West Africa, was just in Benin last week meeting with ambassadors, U.S. ambassadors in the region in countries where uh, the Global Fragility Act is being implemented. Uh, they w welcome, and our partners in coastal West Africa welcome uh, those resources. And uh, as we move into the second year, Senator, I hope we're going to be in a position because, you know, metrics is a big part of that program to, 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 give, you, to give you updates. Uh, we're also talking with AFRICOM about how to uh, increase our support uh, to those governments in managing the threat, which they had originally been focused on the threat from the Gulf of Guinea. Now they're looking north because of the pressure uh, from the Sahel. So we uh, are having uh, wide-ranging conversations with them uh, uh, in coastal West Africa and with our partners in the interagency to see how we can do more. And I'm confident uh, that we're going to be in a position to provide additional support. Um, well, thank you, and um, I would welcome um, a classified briefing at some point, Mr. Chairman, on the intersection between DOD, AID, and state, and on the ongoing threat to stability posed by Wagner, by jihadists, by poor governance, um, as the Assistant Secretary said in her opening statement. Um, this is a region that we take where if we take our eye off the ball, we will be back having more and more urgent hearings about the impact for the people of West Africa and for the governance of West Africa. Um, thank you for your hard work in this difficult area. Look forward to following up with you. Thank you, Senator Coons. We'll, we'll try to arrange uh, that type of information. Uh, we're going to have a vote perhaps later this week on our military presence in Niger. And um, I think it's incumbent upon the administration to get information to this committee uh, prior to that vote as to the importance of our troops in that country as well as the impact it has on the region uh, because uh, it, it, we're going to be asked and we have little time. Senator Kane. Thank you, Mr. Chair, and thanks, Secretary Fee. Just a, a word about Niger. I mean, one of the reasons this matters so much is we lost four service members there and, in 2017, and it was under circumstances that were pretty unusual. There were 
questions about the legal, you know, whether there are ample law of war legal authorities for the missions they were on. Were they, were they trained for the mission that they ended up having to execute? I mean, there was a whole lot of questions that came out of that. And then in the aftermath of the coup, the fact that we still have a thousand troops there and their mission has been redefined, um, you know, there's a lot of questions about the utility. Um, if, if the training we provided, um, you know, ended up leading to the coup, why? Uh, I, I do think sometimes we don't, we forget how unusual we are to have a military that's subordinate to uh, civilian political leadership. And so many nations around the world, the military isn't really subordinate to civilian political leadership. They're a separate power base. Pakistan would be a good example. If you do even the right things to train a military that's not subordinate to civilian political leadership, you empower the military, and sometimes you empower them against the civilian military leadership with the best of intentions. And so in a nation where there has been a history of coups, in a nation where the military does not necessarily envision itself as completely subordinate to civilian military leadership, Anything you do to empower the military could have this potential of a negative consequence. You're empowering them vis-a-vis -vis the elected leadership and undermining democratic institutions, and I think that's something that bears a lot of thought. I wanted to ask you a question just about staffing. The GAO identified in 2019, now this is a couple years old, but that 10% of the state, state's Africa Bureau's total positions at overseas posts were vacant, and the figure seems to have increased based on state's most recent staffing report figures that have been shared with this committee. Can you talk about how the department is trying to address this staffing shortage? Uh, thank you for highlighting that. Uh, the whole team will be happy uh, to know that you support. Uh, in the State Department as a whole, we have about an 89% gap, I mean, 89% um, uh, fill, mm -hmm. and, and, um, but for, for the Africa Bureau, particularly in West Africa, it's about 83%. There's a couple of reasons for that. As you know, the previous administration did a, uh, a, a freeze on hiring. Uh, then we had a problem with attrition. And that's why Secretary Blinken has set up robust uh, budgets uh, uh, to try and, and get us back to proper staffing. Uh, within the Bureau, we have uh, the biggest challenge at the mid-level. Uh, that's usually at a time of life where uh, folks have children that need schooling, may need medical mm -hmm. care, uh, and those are resources and facilities that are hard to find uh, in places like West Africa. Uh, we're doing a lot uh, to attract people. There are still many uh, who are interested in going out and uh, engaging in, in <coughs> what has been called expeditionary diplomacy. Uh, we're trying to provide special incentives, uh, but fundamentally uh, we, we need resources uh, to make sure that we hire predictably and regularly. Um, thank you. Well, and I, th I think your point about this mid-level issue, that's a really important one, too, because that, that's not, I mean, resources is part of it, but there may be creative strategies to try to get people to either stay in, in the mid-level or come back if they've been in the, as an FSO and ex exited the service, so we may need to think about that a little more. I want to ask about Sudan. I, I joined the uh, ranking member, and some others wrote a letter asking about the appointment of a special envoy. Before we get to that, just to put a, some numbers to this, the horrific situation has been going on for about six months. I've dialogued with my Sudanese community in Virginia. The UN reports 9,000 people have been killed, more than 7 million have been forcibly displaced, and nearly 25 million are in need of humanitarian assistance. Can you share any updates pertaining to the ceasefire negotiations that are being held in Jeddah between the SAF and RSF? Thank you so much for raising this urgent and tragic problem. So I'm happy to report today that I do have some updates. 
um, uh, in this grim situation. Uh, I'll start first, if you will, with what I'm sure you'll agree is our priority, which is the civilians. Yeah. So for the past few days, about 100 Sudanese civilians have been meeting in Addis Ababa. They're using the African Union as their house. They call it the African House uh, to have discussions. Um, and they are working towards forming an inclusive and representative uh, pro-democracy civilian front. Uh, it's uh, an important group of Sudanese. It includes people um, from the resistance committees. It includes people from pro professional associations, um, universities, um, uh, uh, civil society groups, as well as the political parties that had previously dominated the <coughs> discussions. They've taken some time to come together. There's a lot of divisions among the Sudanese folks, uh, but we're uh, actively encouraging uh, those dialogues, and we hope that this is the start of a serious process to form uh, the next uh, government of Sudan and to serve as a counterweight to the security forces. Ambassador John Godfrey has been in Addis with the team uh, supporting those talks. Uh, on Later this week, on the 26th of October, after uh, a lot of hard work by Secretary Blinken, talks will resume in Jeddah. They will be uh, 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 very, uh, there will be a very important change. Uh, there will be an African co-facilitator to join the Saudis and the Americans. Um, the, the regional group in East Africa known as EGAD, the executive director will participate in, the, in, the, in, the, in those talks and he will be representing both EGAD and the African Union uh, based on an agreement between those leaders. Uh, the, these talks will be structured differently from before, but fundamentally they will be as they were before, emergency diplomacy limited on trying to pursue ceasefires and ultimately a cessation of hostilities. And given the relationship between uh, reducing violence and allowing humanitarian assistance to get in, there'll also be discussions on improving delivery of humanitarian aid. Martin Griffiths of OCHA has said resorting Jeddah is very important for humanitarian I'm, aid. I'm over my time, but both of those are positive developments. The citizens uh, meeting in Addis Ababa and then the resumption of the somewhat reformatted talks in Jeddah, and I know the committee's going to want to follow up to get the State Department's take on how successful those efforts are. Thank you very much. Thank you, Senator Kane. Senator Van Hollen. Uh, thank you, uh, Mr. Chairman. Uh, Assistant Secretary Fee, great to see you. I want to follow up on really some of Senator Ricketts' uh, questions uh, here. Uh, back in August 2022, the Biden administration put forward its uh, U.S. strategy towards sub-Saharan Africa. Uh, which explicitly said it was crafted to incorporate lessons learned from overly securitized approaches, unquote, to the Sahel. And we've now, of course, seen a series of coups, uh, most recently in Niger, but also in Mali, other uh, West African uh, countries. So my question is, what lessons have been learned uh, about over-securitization, and did the most recent events mean we should go back and look even harder? And uh, have you done that? And what lessons have you learned based on the most recent coup? Thank you for that question. And I'd like to answer it in two ways. Um, I'd like to compare how we responded to the situation in Mali uh, and how we're now responding in Niger and also in Gabon in, in Central Africa. In Mali in 2020, uh, when the previous president was overthrown, uh, there, it was wildly popular uh, because that president was very corrupt. So we thought there was an opportunity to work with the generals uh, to get to a better outcome. 
Uh, over time, and I can list all the negative actions they've taken, it became clear uh, that that was not possible. Uh, and uh, most spectacularly in December 2022 when they invited in Wagner and last year when they made clear they wanted MINUSMA to leave and then in August when the Russians uh, vetoed uh, the sanctions regime for Mali. Uh, so correspondingly, we have hardened our approach to Mali, uh, limiting the development assistance we provide there. We're already applying uh, 7008 there more fully than we did initially. Um, and we've uh, done increased sanctions there, although not the sanctions of, of all of the leaders, as the chairman asked. Um, in, in, in Gabon, similarly, there, there was a coup, and it was wildly popular because it overthrew a government that was considered inept, corrupt, and not uh, democratic. Um, so what are we doing differently there, and what are we doing differently in Niger? First of all, we're more actively engaged uh, at a senior level. Uh, Toria Newland went to Niamey. I went to coastal West Africa to consult. Uh, Judd Devermont of the National Security Council went to Gabon last week. We're working with our partners. Uh, we're, we're offering very, we're expanding what we're doing in terms of suspending assistance, not only assistance captured by 7008, but even uh, security assistance and cooperation that is not uh, required to be uh, uh, limited by the law. We're not uh, invoking ne uh, notwithstanding authorities. We're not invoking waivers. We're trying to make very serious that our partnership, which has been, can be and has been positive, requires uh, the leaders, the, the generals that have taken power to make active concrete steps to get back to de democracy because we understand that democracy is the long-term solution to the root causes of problems. Right. No, I appreciate your, your sort of going back and taking a look at um, how we can better respond in a, a more targeted way. Um, you, you mentioned that um, you have rolled back uh, some of the security assistance that is not required by law uh, to be rolled back. And I, I don't know if you're referring to some of the DOD assistance, but I do want to ask you a question about the DOD assistance, because the coup provision does halt state and USAID-administered funds. But uh, as you know, some DOD uh, support has continued in, in Niger. Uh, Congresswoman Jacobs and I introduced legislation last Congress and are planning to reintroduce it again, that would require Leahy law vetting uh, be applied also uh, to the DOD uh, Section 127 ECHO uh, provision. Uh, and when I asked Dr. Carlin about this at a hearing a, a little while back, uh, the response from Dr. Carlin would uh, said was, I welcome working with my colleagues at the State Department to look at that. So as a representative of the State Department, I'd like to ask your opinion on whether we shouldn't, as a matter of consistency, um, in cases where the coup provision is triggered, also halt uh, the DOD assistance. Uh, thank you for that question. Uh, I would like to share with you, although I'm a representative of the State Department, as you just said, uh, my understanding is that our recommendation to the interagency has been, and that has been agreed, that we do suspend our security cooperation and assistance with Niger, uh, until we sort out a path forward. So um, to the best of my knowledge, uh, we are not providing uh, any security assistance, not, not from state uh, and not, not from the DOD. There are, uh, we are, uh, are um, in a good position because we've had conversations with the Junta about operations that are necessary for force protection. 
But beyond that, we're trying to make clear that if they want that partnership that has made such a positive impact, they need to make changes uh, in governance. Um, with regard to the specific question, uh, I would welcome uh, uh, an active discussion that seems like a, a, a very positive suggestion from my perspective. I'd have to consult with other stakeholders. I'd also like to make a suggestion to the committee, um, uh, which relates to the Trans-Sahel Counterterrorism Partnership Program, which when it was started in 2005 was very innovative in terms of cross-regional and cross-functional. Uh, but over time, uh, I think uh, its success has uh, been impeded by several factors, including that there was no central authority, as there is, for example, in the Global Fragility Act, and declining resources. So I think it would be worthwhile if we could have a discussion with Congress about ways to improve that to deal with the changed environment in the Sahel. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Let me uh, just comment on your statement that we have multiple ways to put pressure, but it seems like it's not working because we're going from coup to coup to coup. I understand the strategy in Mali, but that didn't work. In Niger, it looks like the policies have not worked. So I would just argue the fact that we don't have a consistent response to those who participate in coups has led to the view that you can commit a coup and still maintain a relationship with the United States. It may not be as strong as you want. You may get a suspension of aid. It may have other impacts, but it won't have the personal impact of preventing uh, the use of travel or banking. So I just want to stress the point that the failure to make to which was our previous policies, as I understand it, to consider immediately sanctions, has had a negative impact in discouraging the number of coups we've seen in that region. Our strategy is not working. At least the results are not there. Too many coups. One coup is too many. So uh, I still haven't gotten a clear response from you as to whether. We are adjusting our, what is our policy? When we see a military takeover, what is our policy? I'm, I'm not sure I understand. Are we, do we immediately cut off the aid and consider sanctions and other actions to make it clear that this is unacceptable? All governments are unpopular. We recognize that. But the coup is not the answer. That's been our policy for a long time. It seems like what you're saying we justify our delay because it was an unpopular regime. That just leads to others feeling they can commit coups even against popular regimes. Uh, I hear you, and I agree with you. Uh, I was trying to explain how we have adjusted our policy because what we did in Mali didn't work. So what we're doing now in Niger and in Gabon is not only applying 7008, which applies to state and USAID, as you know well, but also incorporating other US government assistance and cooperation. So there's an across-the-board suspension. There is an effort to coordinate effectively with our partners in the region, such as ECOWAS, with our European partners, so that everyone is united uh, in saying you cannot have a partnership with us 
if you don't make changes. So in fact, Mr. Chairman, we have tried to adjust based on the fact that what we did in Mali was different um, uh, and, and, and not successful. Um, it is true that each uh, country is, is different uh, and has their own circumstances, but as I described in my, uh, my opening statement, there are also many common uh, factors which contribute uh, to this situation. But I, I want you to know that we're trying actually to be very strong about our rejection of these behaviors by taking what you gave us in terms of law and expanding it, making a policy choice uh, to include all U.S. government engagement to make it very clear that these actions are not acceptable. I would argue that from Mali we should recognize that our changing of policies and not imposing sanctions has not worked. We're learning from Mali, but Mali, we didn't impose sanctions. The only sanctions that you're now imposing is against some of the Wagner Group people. Senator Risch, anything further? No, thank you. Senator Ricketts, okay. How long is the record open? Two days. The uh, committee record will remain open for two days for questions for the record. We'd ask that you would respond to those questions promptly. And uh, thank you very much for your service. And with that, the hearing will stand adjourned.